Hello and welcome to the Sam Fiction and Fantasy Fun Podcast. This is episode two of The Witcher chapter-by-chapter book review, where I'll go through a summary of what happened in the latest chapter and give my detailed thoughts on it. Today I'll be discussing chapter two of book one, The Last Wish. In the last chapter, the first story, we last left off with Geralt, our protagonist, when he was recovering from a slash to the throat from Astrigus Talons. He had just lifted the curse from the monster, who is now, thanks to Geralt, a human 14-year-old girl and the Princess of Temeria. She had almost completed her transition from monster to human when she injured Geralt, almost killing him. He awoke two days later in bed with his sword, other belongings, and his reward of 3,000 orns. From here, I will deliver the summary of our second chapter and second short story. The chapter begins with Geralt awakening from sleep in a temple of the goddess Melitale, where he's taking some time to rest from his wound caused by the Striga. At the beginning of the first chapter, which I left out in episode one, Geralt was asleep in the same temple during the same day when an unknown woman paid him a visit and seduced him with her mystique and intoxicating scent of chamomile. In this chapter, Geralt and the woman, who we now know is a silent priestess named Iola, are woken by a high priestess and longtime friend of Geralt called Mother Neneke. Neneke shoes Iola off and tells Geralt they'll meet later. Meaning that Neneke and Geralt will meet later, not Iola and Geralt. When later comes, Geralt and Neneke discuss religion and Geralt's lack thereof. He admits he would like to see Iola again, but she tells him to leave her be as she needs to prepare for a trance she means to place Geralt under in an attempt to discover what's going on with Geralt and to explore the vortex of power surrounding him. Geralt is quite skeptical of this idea, believing it'll be a pointless endeavor, but Neneke firmly insists that it's worth a shot because if nothing comes of it, it won't hurt anyone. It's from this moment that the chapter's short story, called A Grain of Truth, begins. The story starts with Geralt traveling on his horse Roach on a highway. He sees a gathering of birds flying in the distance and expects they're probably circling for a particular reason that he decides is worth investigating. When he reaches the destination, he comes across two corpses, a man and a woman, who he learns from inspecting their bodies had been dead for about two or three days. Along with a blue rose pinned to her dress, he also sees bite marks on the neck of the woman who he can tell tried to run from her predator but was unsuccessful. Unsure of what killed them, He travels in the direction of where they probably came from to see if he can uncover what type of monster might be killing innocent travelers in this area, and maybe even earn himself a reward for killing it. He eventually comes across a gated mansion. The closer he gets to the mansion, the more uneasy and fussy Roach starts to become, and he has to use one of his witcher signs to calm her. Getting closer to the mansion's gate, he can feel the eyes of another person on him. He looks back to the top of the slope he just came down to see a pale woman with a white dress and black hair watching him. Roach begins her fit again until Geralt uses the Axia sign to soothe her apprehension. He offers the strange woman a friendly greeting, but she doesn't reciprocate and quickly runs into the forest. As he approaches the gate, it swings open on its own. He enters the courtyard and notices a rose bush with dark blue roses, just like the one the murdered girl had pinned to her dress. 
He approaches the flowers, but is interrupted when the door and shutters to the dilapidated mansion burst open all at once, and a monster exits the house, charging directly at Geralt. He quickly draws his sword, to which the monster responds by coming to a sudden halt. The monster has a humanoid form, standing on two legs, wearing fancy clothes, but he has a bear-like head and paws. He tells Geralt to leave and threatens him when Geralt doesn't obey, but after a few more threats and developing curiosity over Geralt's missing fear, he invites him into his home and offers him the right of hospitality. As they walk through the home, the creature demonstrates magic abilities by telling the house to turn on the lights, open and close doors and windows, and conjure up food and drink, all of which the house does for him. The pair sit down to eat and drink. We learn the creature's name is Nivellin. Nivellin explains that his appearance in the house is magic as the result of a curse. Twelve years ago, after the death of his father, who was not a well-liked man because of his burning of nearby settlements that didn't pay levies on time, and robbing of nearby travelers and merchants, Nivellin joined the gang of unsavory robbers that followed his father. One day, while they were traveling, they robbed a sketchy temple where Nivellin, encouraged by the gang members, forced himself on one of the priestesses. During his crime, she cursed him, telling them that he is a monster in human skin and that he will become a monster in monster skin, along with some mention of love and blood that Nivellin couldn't fully remember. A few days later, he woke up in his house in the form Geralt met him in today. In a frenzied rage, he scared off his aunt, cousin, cats, some servants, the rest of the gang, and accidentally killed some servants that didn't manage to escape. He thought about the possibility of reversing the spell. He imagined that fairy tales about girls turning frogs into princes might contain a grain of truth. One day, he looked out the window and saw a man picking the blue roses from his garden. Nivellin responded by rushing at the man, threatening him, similar to how he threatened Geralt earlier, and the man, completely frightened, defended, defending himself by saying the roses were just a gift for his daughter. Recalling his theory about the possibility of love reversing the priestess's spell, he tells the man, your daughter or your life. But the man's daughter was only eight years old. Nivellin felt bad for scaring him, so he gifted him some of his leftover fortune from his father's time. The man must have boasted about the fortune because it wasn't long before another man showed up with his daughter. Nivellin and the man struck a deal that his daughter would live with him for a year in exchange for gold and precious stones. And just to be clear, Nivellin paid the man gold and precious stones in exchange for the girl's company. Nivellin and the girl became fond of one another over the course of the year, but nothing came of it, and her father returned for her when it was time, and that was that. More girls were brought to him throughout the years by their fathers. The next one, he was more hopeful would have been successful in lifting the curse after a night in bed together, but nothing changed. Although these year-long visits didn't produce the outcome he had originally hoped for, he allowed them to continue coming because he enjoyed the company. He also came to accept his monster form. Prior to the curse, he was always getting sick, girls never paid attention to him, and he didn't have a house that would provide him with food and clean clothes and water and the ability to turn the lights on and off on demand. In addition to the house's features, he now has incredible health, strength, and confidence with women. Nivellin finishes his story and Geralt decides it's time he was on his way. 
As Nivellin walks Geralt out, he confirms Geralt's suspicions that the black-haired woman he saw earlier was Nivellin's current lover and housemate. She wasn't another girl brought by her father to live with the beast for a year. The two are actually in love. Additionally, he discloses that she likes birds, she disappears into the forest for days on end, doesn't eat human, human food, and on the rare occasion that she speaks, it's in an unknown language. Right as he's about to leave, Geralt suggests she might be a Rizalka, and Evelyn agrees to the possibility. The next day, Geralt and Roach are traveling again when he has a shocking realization of what Verena, Nivellin's lover, actually is, a vampire. He comes to the conclusion that she was the one responsible for the death of the man and his daughter he found in the forest yesterday, as well as the horrifying dreams Nevelyn mentioned he had been having lately. He returns to the house and finds Verena singing, without opening her mouth, by the fountain in the courtyard. She confirms that she is a Bruxa, a form of higher vampire. A difficult and brutal fight takes place between the two. Geralt is close to defeat when Nivellin exits the house with blood on the cuff of his tunic. Verena has recently drank his blood. He distracts the vampire, who knocks Nivellin back by screaming. Geralt is able to return to the offense again, but is quickly knocked back down. Nivellin impales her with a wooden stake, which doesn't kill her. She moves closer to Nivellin, ready to kill him with her fangs until Geralt slices her head off. In this moment, Nivellin returns back to his original human form. While Geralt is treating himself and Nivellin with medicine, he explains there's a grain of truth in every story, blood and love, and that to lift the spell, it had to be true love. So, if it wasn't obvious, there are a lot of parallels with this story and the story of Beauty and the Beast. Uh, one of those parallels would be the rose. So they have that blue rose bush in the Witcher Grain of Truth story. And in Beauty and the Beast, in the original version, the father of Beauty, I think she goes by the name Beauty. Um, I might get the Disney version mixed up because... I, uh, I'm more familiar with that one from when I was a kid. Um, yeah, in the Disney version, her name was Belle. But I think in the original story, her name was Beauty. Either way, it's neither here nor there. The Her father is picking her roses from the outside of the Beast's house. And it was a gift for her. She requested that as a gift. So... That's one of the parallels. And then also, and again, this is just what I remember from the Disney version. I, I don't know about the original story, but at least in the Disney version, he had um, furniture and you know, things around the house that helped him. You know, it was, it was active. They were alive. They had little faces and they had names. And in this story, his house did what he told it to do. And of course, there's the beast. And it took true love to break the spell. And obviously, in the Witcher version, it's a lot darker. He had to, or his his lover that he had those feelings of true love for, had to actually die for the spell to be broken. Nivellin is a 
interesting. He's wary of Geralt at first, and that's probably because, like he mentions during the story, there could be old foes of his father or uh, greedy um, fathers of the daughters that stayed with him that might come by to kill him or send a witcher after him. He mentions that human greed knows no limits, which can be true in a lot of cases. And a lot of the uh, people that his father did dirty, you know, they could have living relatives still that might seek revenge. And yeah, he does assume at first that Geralt or yeah, that, that Geralt was sent by somebody to deal with him, which we know isn't true. But that's why he's pretty, he's pretty suspicious in the beginning when they first, when they first start talking. And of, of course, um, he just doesn't trust anybody that comes to his house. And that probably seemed weird because he would still have men show up in his courtyard with their daughters and Geralt wasn't there with any daughter. But he lets him in and he grants him the right of hospitality, probably uh, because he's lonely. Once he learned that sleeping with those girls wouldn't undo the curse, he continued to let them come for some time uh, because it was nice for him to have company. And that's totally understandable since he lives in a remote location. There's no other settlements nearby. And his current lover, I mean, he does have somebody that lives with him. She doesn't really speak. And when she does speak, he doesn't even know what she's saying. So even though he has someone around him, it probably gets lonely. And he dives into this whole story with Geralt, somebody that he just met. And I'm sure it's, that, that comes from a place of loneliness when he... Doesn't, he's not even able to talk to or have like a regular conversation with the person that he is currently living with. So despite Nivellen's appearance, Geralt confirms that he isn't a monster. Otherwise, he wouldn't be able to touch anything silver. So when they're eating at the table, there's a silver tray. Nivellen's able to touch it. At one point... Geralt shows Nivellen his witcher medallion that hangs at his neck and he picks it up with his hand a little bit to take a look at it. So I guess he's basically saying that naturally born monsters can't touch silver. Um, so if you are, I don't know, it's a little, I feel like it's a little bit contradictory from the last story where Geralt used a silver chain to wrap it around the Striga, and she was also the result of a curse. She wasn't, I mean, she, I, I guess technically she was born that way, but I think that that was supposed to be the point that because she was the result of magic, that silver should have, uh, what do you call it? It, it should, it should have, um, stopped her. It, uh, it obviously didn't work. I think she was so strong and she was able to break open the chain that was wrapped around her. So that was just something that I was wondering. I don't know if there was just inconsistencies or if maybe there's something that I missed or it hasn't really been fleshed out enough, but we might learn a little bit more about that at some point. 
But as of right now, I thought that that was a little bit weird, I guess you could say. And along with him not really being technically a monster, as Geralt says, uh, he really, he's not, uh, maybe you could say now he is, but at least before he was turned into this form, he was not a good guy. He did what he did to that priestess, and you could make the argument that he was peer pressured by that gang. He he says something along the lines of, um, with the with that crew, he was as much in charge of them as a piglet would be in a pack of wolves. And he refills to himself as, I think he calls it a, a milk sop. He, he was basically just, he wasn't the type of person that would be a leader. He, I guess, was kind of um, like mentally weak. But either way, what he did was, it was honestly pretty awful what he did. And I don't know if this is something that everybody would agree upon, but I don't think that that punishment was really that bad of a punishment because he, one of the results of that curse was that he had his house help him do things. He didn't, like all of his servants were gone. So this is somebody that probably wouldn't even know how to cook or clean clothes or take care of themselves in that way because he grew up in a house with servants. And then the servants leave and some of them he accidentally killed. Then the house starts to help him. The house does everything for him. Like that, that would be really nice. You know, if I had a house like that, I, I'd be pretty happy. And of course, turning into that beast, you know, at first it wasn't easy for him and he was depressed about it for a while. But eventually it becomes something nice for him. And I know that at the end he did have to suffer because he says that he loved Verena and it was the result of his curse being lifted, being reversed, was her death, the death of somebody that he loves. And that's got to be a really horrible thing to go through. But overall, I think the punishment didn't really fit the crime. I think that if he, if this priestess, I, we don't know the ins and outs of how that magic works, works, of course, but if she was able to curse him, you'd think that she would do something way worse, that would have a way worse outcome than what she actually did because his crime was, it was horrible. So hopefully he's learned his lesson and he's probably a better guy now. And he admits that what he did was wrong. Not that I'm saying it was okay at all. Just, I think that maybe moving forward in his life, he would probably be a better guy because of everything that he's been through. And something else that I thought was interesting was that the daughters of the merchants that would come by and the daughters that would come and live with him for a year, they were really happy to live with him. Geralt suggests that someone connected to the girls could come after Nivellen, but he dismisses that pretty quickly because the girls were treated like princesses compared to how they lived prior. Uh, he mentions that one of the girls, 
her father was a knight. Um, a lot of the girls, I think their fathers were merchants, but the one, the one girl had a knight as a father. And he said two weeks after she arrived, uh, she still had, uh, marks on her, on her back and her thighs from the strap her father would use. And a lot of them had stooped shoulders as they had to work really hard. They, I guess a lot of them were peasants. And he said that they were treated like princesses when they would live there. And they didn't even know where the kitchen was because they didn't have to prepare any food. So I thought that that was pretty interesting. Oh, we also get a glimpse into more of Geralt's life and Geralt's kind of his background. We, we get to know him a little bit better in this story. Um, so, well, not in just the story, but in this chapter. So in the beginning part, um, when he's at the temple of Melitale, when um, Iola leaves his bed, he has this inner dialogue that he feels this resentment towards her for not being Yennefer, who is presumably a woman from his past. Uh, we don't learn anything about this Yennefer up to this point. And then he feels shame for the resentful feelings. And on, up until this point, we've mostly seen nothing but extreme stoicism and a very quiet demeanor. And that's actually something that Nivellen brings up. He says something about uh, the, the rumors he's heard about witchers. And one of them is that they're stripped of their human feelings. So they're obviously not completely stripped. There, there's got to be, there's got to be a grain of truth in that uh, rumor, but I don't think that it's really 100% because if it were, Geralt wouldn't have been feeling resentment and then shame for the resentful feelings towards Iola. And I, I mentioned in the last episode that he seems like a good guy and we get another example of how he's a good guy, Geralt. He doesn't need a contract to take care of monsters who are killing people. He doesn't need the agreement for pay to protect people. So the example we get with that is uh, Verena is obviously, he, he figures out that she's the one doing the killing. She's also evoking Nivellen's dreams. Uh, Nivellen mentions that he's been having hideous or monstrous dreams and and Geralt's able to figure out, I guess that's something vampires do is um, she evoked those dreams and she was attempting to rule the forest with him. And when Geralt initially sets off looking for what killed the, um, the armorer and the woman, the, I don't think I mentioned in the summary that the, the man, the two corpses he comes across, he notices that the man is an armorer. Um, so the armorer and his daughter, Geralt goes off, looking to see if he can figure out where or what might have killed them. And he he's talking out loud to Roach, his horse, and he says, maybe we can earn some money for your oats. So he originally was looking so that he could maybe get some money for that, which obviously is, you know, what he does. He's a witcher. That's exactly what his job description is. But... He knows when he sets off to go back to Nivellen's house after leaving, when he realizes Verena is a vampire, he knows he's not going to get paid money for that. And he does it anyway, which I think was a, it was a nice move. He could have just ignored it and, you know, continued on his path, but he didn't. 
And we also get more examples of him being pretty exceptional for a witcher. Uh, Neneke is surprised and disappointed at how he was wounded by the Striga. She says that that's not, she basically says it's not like him. Um, and then she also mentions that he has exceptional powers of regeneration, which I mean, that could apply to all witchers, not just Geralt. We really don't know one way or the other. Like if she was saying, oh, like you're a witcher, so you have exceptional powers of regeneration. Or if it's, you know, his powers are more exceptional than other witchers. But at least with the with getting wounded by the Striga, and she's known Geralt for a long time, so if that's something that surprises her, then that's probably because he's really good at not getting hurt because he is a badass witcher. And it isn't made clear. Um, this might be me just being a little bit too pedantic, but it's not made clear what happened to the money he was rewarded for lifting the curse on Voltest's daughter. So he, he earned 3,000 orins. We don't know much about the currency in this world, but, and I mentioned this in the last episode, the man Ostrit tries to pay Geralt to leave without killing the Striga and without trying to lift the curse because he wants the Striga to keep killing people so that it will look bad on Foltest and then maybe Foltest will be overthrown because he hated him. Uh, that's a whole other thing. But he tries to pay him with a thousand orins, and he tells him that he's rich with just a thousand. And Geralt reverses the spell on the Striga, is rewarded the three thousand. But Neneke suggests to Geralt that he shouldn't fight any agile opponents while his neck is healing. And he asks how he's supposed to earn a living. But I thought, shouldn't that reward hold him over? Especially if he's still in the process of healing. Shouldn't he still have that money? We don't know what happened with that. I thought it was a little bit weird that it wasn't mentioned. Yeah, because may maybe Geralt just enjoys a very luxurious lifestyle. That's something that we really wouldn't know much about up to this point. But if that's the case, I don't know. I think that they should, they maybe should have just explained what happened to that money. Cause shouldn't that be enough to hold a member? It's probably not even a big deal. And this is something that I do <laughs> sometimes is I'll focus on really tiny, insignificant details, but it was just something that I thought about. So it, it, it's probably not even worth diving into, but it's, it's a little interesting, I guess. And along with these other Geralt details that we got, we also learned that he's got some good tracking abilities. He was able to figure out how long ago the murdered armorer and his daughter died. So he thinks that it was about two or three days ago. This is um, part of him talking out loud to Roach. He says two or three days ago. And when he's with Nivellen, Later, Nivellen confirms that they came by three days ago. He's able to tell that the man died instantly and the girl tried to run and her predator dragged her by the throat with its teeth and the predator left no tracks behind. 
And this is what he does. He's a witcher. He's a monster hunter. He, he's got to have some tracking abilities. But we, we just get examples in this story about how far those tracking skills go. And they go far, for sure. Uh, he was able to figure out that Verena was a vampire. Uh, part of that was from, I think most of it was from Roach. Roach freaked out whenever she was around. When he was approaching the manor, when he got there and then he saw her, and then when he went back the next day, yeah, Roach was freaking out. And apparently it's because horses become very uneasy by a vampire's presence. And also he could tell she wasn't an ordinary vampire because she could come out in the sun, uh, which I thought was worth mentioning just in case we ever have any run-ins with a vampire again throughout the story. Uh, I think it's always nice to point out those little details. And even if they're not significant, even if it doesn't come up again, I always like to, to note those things. I think, I just think it's fun. We also get more background on witchers in this chapter. So it might depend on who you're talking to, but they're not really considered human. Nivellen asks Geralt if he's human, and Geralt says, not quite, no. Nivellen's question comes from Geralt's ability to see the portraits across the dark room, which wouldn't be possible for a normal human. So Nivellen, when they're sitting down eating, Nivellen points out the portrait of his father, and then there's somebody else who he doesn't know who it is, and himself from before he was cursed. And Geralt's able to see it, and he looks, and he's just, you know, like, oh, okay. And Nivellen's like, well, wait a second, you can actually see that from here? He's like, I can see it, but I'm a monster, like, I'm a beast. Like, I, I, it's understandable that I can see it, but if, what, like, what are you if you're able to see that? And he says... He asks him if he's human, and Geralt's like, well, if you put it that way, then no, not quite. And Nivellen says that he's heard witchers abduct tiny children and feed them magic herbs, and the ones who survive become witchers themselves, and therefore all human feelings and reactions are trained out of them, and they're taught to kill. In other words, they're turned into monsters in order to kill other monsters. So that's something else. It's not... Geralt doesn't say one way or the other if that's completely true, but he doesn't deny that part either. One of the things that uh, Nivellen says is that he hears that some people argue they should start hunting witchers because there's more and more witchers and fewer and fewer monsters. And that's the only part that Geralt contradicts. He says that there's not fewer and fewer monsters. And then another thing about witchers that we learn in this chapter is that they can narrow their pupils into vertical slits on command. And that's something that we learn because Geralt is um, in the morning when he's at the temple and he's woken by Neneke. The sun is kind of blinding him at first and he puts his hand up you know, to like block the sun, like to shade his eyes. So it's, you know, not killing his eyes like a normal human would. And it's, uh, it's written, it's like in her dialogue, I guess, that all she had to do was, um, just turn the, um, 
his pupils into vertical slits. And then that would, uh, that would help to shade his eyes from the sun, which he doesn't do because it's just a normal human reflex that he's never been able to shake. So I uh, thought that was worth mentioning because I like learning more about witchers because we don't know that much up to this point. So every time we get to know a little bit more, I like to note it. And then just a couple more things on witchers that we learn. Well, in the last episode, we were talking about the witcher signs. I don't know why I keep saying we. I keep using the pronoun we. And clearly I'm sitting here recording this alone. <laughs> I like look around if you're uh, just listening to this. I don't know why I just look, look around I'm like there is nobody here, right? Uh, but yeah, I don't know why I keep saying we. For, I, I'm in the habit of doing that for some reason, even though this podcast is so new. I don't know why I keep saying we. It's me, I, I. In the last episode, I was talking about um, the witcher signs. So yeah, witcher signs. We learn about three more. In the last episode, we learned about the Ard sign, which was something, it was like an invisible force. And then there was another sign, which they don't give us a name for, but he was able to um, tell people what to do. There's got to be an easier way to describe that than just like he was able he was able to boss people around and they would just do what he said. Like they would kind of just go into like uh like a trance, I guess. The word trance is on my mind because it was used in this chapter. But they would uh they would lose their willpower and just obey him. He did that when he wanted the guards to bring him to the castle and in um, Tamaria, so we could talk about the Striga contract. But yeah, we weren't given a name for that one, but we are given three more signs in this chapter. So there's one called Heliotrop, Heliotrope, not sure on the pronunciation, but what that did was it, it cushioned the impact of his body with the wall when Verena, the vampire, sent him flying with her scream. So she was able to, um, scream and that would knock him she did it at nivellin too it just knocked them off their feet and like just sent them flying and that was something that he used so that he wouldn't hit the wall as hard pretty much the only detail we get on that though and then there was another sign that they referred to as axia and he used that on roach when roach was getting fussy at the vampire's presence so that was used to calm her uh, there might be more to that. I don't know. Um, as of right now, we don't know at this point in the book, I should say, because I think that there probably could be more to a sign like that. If he's able to use that to make his horse calm down when she's panicking, but we'll see. It might come up again. It might not, but we'll see. And then there's Quinn. And he used that when Verena is in her bat form and she's flying at Geralt after she knocked him down the first time. So she screams, he gets knocked down, he uses that heliotrope sign, and then he uses the Quen to kind of shield himself from her because she's flying at him in her bat form really fast. I think they describe it. That's another thing. I keep using the wrong pronoun too when I am talking about the author of the book. He describes it. I keep like like grouping things like I, or I keep acting like it's a group of people 
when it was just this one dude wrote this book. Um, and I'm, I'm doing that with myself too. I'm saying we, when it's just me. <laughs> uh, okay. That's something I'll work on. Sorry about that. Um, he, Slepkowski describes Verena coming at him. Um, like she's being, what does he say? Something about how he's like, or she's like being shot from a crossbow or she's like an arrow being shot from a crossbow. Like she's really fast. She's, she's a very tough opponent. And he uses the Quen sign to try to shield himself from her. Um, since he was just knocked down and she moves so fast, but I think she gets around it. So I think it might be like an invisible shield and she's able to get around it by going upwards and then flying down vertically towards him. So the Witcher signs are pretty cool. And if there are more, I'm excited to learn about them, but we'll have to wait and see. In conclusion, this is a good place to wrap this up uh, because this short story obviously was a flashback and it took place before the story with the Striga. There's not a lot we can predict about where the story may be heading or what's in store next for Geralt. Probably nothing else to do with Nivellen since these stories aren't going in chronological order. And perhaps Geralt will allow Iola to perform this trance on him that um, Neneke wants him to do. And maybe that will uncover something interesting. And also maybe we'll get to know more about our stoic protagonist. There's no rush though. We've got a lot of story ahead of us. We're at the very beginning of eight books. So we've got plenty of time to learn more about Geralt, more, learn more about his Witcher signs, what Witchers, like everything that a Witcher can do, how they're created, how many of them there are. It's fun though. It's really fun learning these things throughout the story. And I like that it's not given to us all at once because it, it makes it a little bit more exciting in what is already an exciting book. There's a lot of action. So both of these stories so far, Geralt has fought very difficult to fight monsters and he's accomplished some good things. So our next story is called The Lesser Evil. It's another good one. I think they're all good. I'm trying to remember all of them. Um, I can't think there was a story of any of these short stories that I read that I thought were, oh, that one was kind of boring. I don't think I had that thought about any of them. Like, I think I enjoyed all of them. So it doesn't really mean much when I say, oh yeah, the next story is gonna be good because yeah, I mean, in my opinion, I think they're all good. I think the entire series is, it's really good. It's, it's super exciting. So if you haven't read this through, if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't actually read the books yet, yeah, it's, it really is a treat. It's, I mean, I, I'm obviously, I have a biased opinion considering I love the story enough to make a podcast about it. I wouldn't be making a podcast about something that I didn't like, of course, but if, I mean, if you're into this kind of stuff, into fantasy stuff, or if you already like The Witcher based on other things, you know, there's the Netflix show that's out now. Uh, there's those, there's the video games. If you like The Witcher from those things, then you should like these stories. Anyway, 
I look forward to the next episode. And if you have listened this far, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.